and homily based on the writings of Mr. Dirk Bolenbach. A word about homilies. Homilies have come to mean sermons, brief sermons, sometimes, <laughs> not always. When the 1662 prayer book and the prayer books before that were established, it was the custom to bind together books of homilies. The first book was 21 homilies, and there were others to follow. These homilies dealt with various points of Christian theology, such as the incarnation, the, atone the atonement, etc. The purpose was some clergy were not as well educated in, as others, particularly those in far-fung places. This gave them a place where they could preach or read the theology of the church in such a way that others might learn from it. This morning, I am delivering an homily. Dirk Ballenbach is our parish historian. I am a clergy person not well educated in the history of Ridgefield. Therefore, we are having an homily. As the 1700s began, Ridgefield was neither explored nor settled by Englishmen. Not only that, there was not a single Anglican, Church of England, parish in the entire colony of Connecticut. Much would change in a short time, but it would not always be easy. Following an exploratory visit to the area by several Norwalk inhabitants, a petition was submitted to the General Assembly in Hartford to purchase a tract of land from Indians then living in what they called Kautatoa, which means highlands. It was approved, and an agreement was negotiated and signed by Chief Katona of the Ramapu tribe with some of the original proprietors in the autumn of 1708, granting the Englishman some 20,000 acres for the sum of 100 pounds sterling. Settlement then proceeded apace. I would add it was a pretty good deal. The first proprietors, 25 in number, were all Congregationalists. But soon to arrive in 1709 was number 26, Ebenezer Smith, whose name appears on our earliest surviving membership rolls. We thereby can presume him to be the first Anglican to call Ridgefield home. Smith operated a tavern, which given the temper of the times, seemed somehow more fitting for an Anglican to be doing than for his Calvinist neighbors. Records indicate that Smith died in 1744 at the age of 60 
and is buried in the Old Town Cemetery in the triangle formed by Maple Shade and North Salem Roads and North Street. At the time, Connecticut was governed under the provisions of the Fundamental Orders of 1639 and a generous charter granted by Charles II in 1662, which provided an unusual latitude in self-government, but it also provided an established church, and therein lay the rub. All citizens paid compulsory taxes to support the Congregational Church, and voting rights were limited to members of that church. The Puritans, who had come to power in England in the mid-1600s under Oliver Cromwell, had sought to purge the Church of England of any customs for which they could not find biblical basis. Their intent was to abolish the Episcopal hierarchy, the prayer book, all ritual, vestments, and the celebration of Christmas, among other things. Even after the restoration of the Stuart monarchy to the British throne, Puritans here in New England often persisted in their animosity toward Anglicans. The influential Matthews clerical family of Massachusetts preached special sermons against the apostasy. That would be us. Cotton Mather himself, accusing Samuel Johnson and his friends of rashness, subversion of Protestantism, and favoring popery. Johnson, his target in this instant, had established the first Anglican congregation in Connecticut, in Stratford, at about the time of Ridgefield's founding, and would become the first Anglican clergyman to organize a parish here in Ridgefield. Mr. Johnson and other clerical converts from Congregationalism must have been deeply affected, if not threatened by such attacks, though he endured, and this parish was founded in 1725. Denouncement by the likes of Cotton Mather, a strong influence at the time of the infamous and then recent Salem witch trials, could not have been lightly dismissed. Nonetheless, relationships between the two earliest churches in Ridgefield were amicable at least until the time of the American Revolution, a half century later. What happened then was quite a different story. Ridgefield's good fortune as a community was also enhanced by good relations with the Indians who dwelled in the area. The most serious of Indian wars to affect the colony, the Pequot Wars of, six, of the 1630s, and the so-called King Philip's War of the 70s, were by then history. 
And yet, wars with France and its occasional Iroquois allies persisted. And frontier communities like Ridgefield were not without concern. Massacres in Deerfield, Massachusetts occurred in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. Deerfield lay about 100 miles north, northeast, that direction. That was not ecclesial. I'm sorry. About 100 miles north, northeast, and the Indian attacks there affected several of Ridgefield's early proprietors. A brother of John Belden, one of the original 25, was seized in an early attack, and later John would travel to Canada to secure his return. In 1704, during Queen Anne's war with France, Benjamin Hoyt, an 11-year-old boy, was captured in the Deerfield Massacre that February. He would later settle in Ridgefield and gain possession of two of the original 25 lots. The Hoyts were an early part of this Paris. Benjamin, or his namesake, being warden toward the end of that century. The natives in the immediate locale, however, cultivated friendship with the English who in turn afforded them some assurance of protection from the Mohawks, the warlike allies, allies of the French who lived just to the west. On a number of occasions, Ridgefield residents were called upon to bear arms against the French and Indians during the 1700s, and several responded and fought, although not in the immediate area. Daily life, however, was focused more on, a work in, on the workaday frontier challenges, initially on survival itself in the small village. Virtually everyone farmed, whatever else their vocations might be. They made their own clothes from the wool they sheared from the sheep, often raised on common pasture land. Spinning wheels took their place alongside muskets in the family keeping room. Both were quite functional. A history of Ridgefield notes that a woman would take her flax wheel and her baby and a bundle of flax and spend the day at a neighbor's spinning and enjoying social time as well. All the women folks could spin the wool and flax into yarn and thread, and then they knit stockings and mittens and wove the linen into cloth. Each family also made its own soap and candles. Some of these early settlers were silversmiths and coopers, blacksmiths and tavern keepers like Ebenezer Smith, and there were physicians and cobblers and millers as well. The town's first grist mill was built and operated by Daniel Sherwood, one of the initial parish communicants and church warden. Whatever their religious preferences, early residents of Ridgefield were generally poor 
and often had to pool their efforts to clear their land and erect their log homes. Stone bees, clearing bees, and raising bees were a part of communal life. And thus, all were drawn together, whether Anglican or congregational, in their way of worship. Anglican services were somewhat formally held in town beginning in 1725, as the sign out front of the church indicates. It was then that Samuel Johnson first visited Ridgefield. He and his early successors were members of the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. That would be us. In 1728, the Reverend Henry Kaner from Fairfield knew of some 12 families in Ridgefield in need of Anglican care. Seven years later, the Reverend John Beach from Newtown reported that he often officiated and ministered sacraments in Ridgefield, where in 1735 there were nearly 20 families of very serious and religious people who had a just esteem of the Church of England and desired to have opportunity of worshiping in that way. By 1740, several families working together took time from their busy lives to construct the first actual church building out front of where we sit today. It was something less than 36 feet in length from north to south <coughs> and 15 feet wide, about the size of our present chancel. A town meeting in 1738 had approved an agreement that allowed members of the church to use their town tax money to support those who would conduct services here rather than have it diverted to the congregational ministry just down what was then known as Town Street. Thus, even with a rather limited edifice, but with assured financial support, the way was prepared for the parish to grow and to prosper on this very site. As you enter this present church building, there is a sign usually placed just inside these doors. It begins by urging anyone who enters this holy house of God to not leave it without a prayer. And then it adds that we should give thanks for those who in past ages built this place to his glory and for those who dying that we might live have preserved for us our heritage, to which I say, Amen. <laughs>